I'd like you to find the book of Haggai, please, H-A-G-G-A-I. Some of you are looking at me like there is a book of Haggai. Uh, yes, it's in the Hebrew Scriptures, the Old Testament. If you are using a Bible, just look in the contents page. Uh, Google is a wonderful friend, is it not? And uh, there are no message notes today. You can take your own. The title is The Best is Yet to Come. The Best is Yet to Come. If you are around my vintage or a little older, you will remember a song called The Best is Yet to Come. It was made um, famous by Frank Sinatra. It was first recorded by Tony Bennett. And it was actually the song that Frank Sinatra, it was the last song he sang in public in 1994, four years before his death. And uh, in the latter part of his life, he actually came back to his faith in the Lord. And uh, so he, he put those words, well, he didn't because he was already dead, but um, he asked for those words to be inscribed on his tombstone. So if you ever go to Frank Sinatra's tombstone, it gives his full name and uh, the year he was born, the year he died, and across the top, the best is yet to come. In recent weeks, the Lord has impressed upon me that the best days for Bayside Church are still ahead, that the best is yet to come. And so, as Jimmy's mentioned, this is our 27th anniversary of Bayside Church this weekend. And so, I thought it would be appropriate to share with you what God has captivated in my heart by sharing a prophetic message with you today. Now, I just want to um, say a couple of things, and, and I need to do this for a couple of reasons. Number one, I need to give context, and number two, some of you are still trying to find Haggai. But every time I preach and teach at Bayside, I am prophesying as well. Uh, we, we shouldn't separate those things. And our teaching team, um, when, they're, when they're preaching and teaching, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they are prophesying to you. And so you need to come with that attitude of hearing the prophetic voice of God every time we gather together. Prophecy is literally speaking, preaching, and teaching under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I have a little prayer that I pray before every service when I'm preaching, and it goes something like this, Lord, as soon as my feet touch the platform, I thank you that I am filled with your Holy Spirit and equipped to teach your people your word. And so I prayed that last night, I prayed it again this morning, as soon as my feet touch this platform, the Spirit of God is upon me, and I am ready to proclaim God's Word to you. Prophecy, of course, hasn't always been viewed in this biblical way. I became a Christian in 1977, which is kind of the tail end of the Jesus People movement and right in the middle of the charismatic movement. The charismatic era started around 1960 when people in the traditional churches discovered the fullness of the Holy Spirit, the baptism with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, the gifts of the Spirit, and so, uh, what we experienced back in those days is during a church service, sometimes someone would uh, have a prophetic word and they would just stand up in the church service and start to speak out. Now, sometimes that was wonderful and sometimes that was not wonderful because, uh, you know, you, you can't protect the sheep from the voice of every person. And so, we're a lot more cautious these days um, with that and I think rightly so uh, as well. The other thing that fascinated me back in those days was that God spoke King James. 
Because every prophetic word, the person would get up and say, Yea, verily, thus saith the Lord, I, the Lord your God, hither, whither, thither. And, and off they would go. And uh, there were a lot of yea, verilies uh, in it. And so God spoke King James. I suppose the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus and Paul. And so it was good enough for them as well. I'm glad that we've grown up from that too. I remember one guy standing up in a church meeting and he said, Yea, verily, my people, thus says the Lord your God, as Abraham did lead the people of Israel out of, the, of Egypt and slavery and into the promised land, so I, the Lord your God, will lead you into a large and spacious place. And on he went and then he sat down. And then a little while later, he stood up again. Yea, verily, my people, the Lord thy God doth apologize. He was mistaken. It was not Abraham, it was Moses. And a lot of those things we did, didst hear and see back in those days of charismania. And so here in this book of Haggai that you've all found now, it's only a tiny little book, and there are four prophetic words that are recorded in Haggai. And we're going to read one of these, Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. And it starts, and as each of the prophetic words do in, in the book of Haggai, with giving the date of the prophecy. And I love this. To me, it's one of the, the stamps of authenticity on this. That it's not just some random word given to some random person at some particular time in the past. Haggai actually says, this is when I got this and delivered it to the people of God. And so it starts, Haggai 2 and verse 1, on the 21st day of the seventh month. And so that's in the Hebrew calendar, which is completely different to ours. Uh, they used a lunar year, 360 days, ra rather than our solar year. And so their calendar was different. Their uh, days of the week had different names. Their months had different names. But if we were to put this 21st day of the seventh month into our language, this prophecy was given on the 17th of October in the year 520 BC. So this is an ancient prophetic word. This was given by Haggai 2,539 years ago on the 17th of October this year. And so on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. And this is it. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Josedach, uh, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? I'm going to go into a little bit of history in a moment for you so you can understand fully what this is saying. But the second temple is about to be built. There were people that were standing in the crowd who just returned from captivity in Babylon, and they knew, they remembered what the original temple was like, Solomon's temple. And here they are, they were taken into Babylon, they've come back from Babylon, they're in Jerusalem, the second temple is about to be built. Who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear, 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. And then this verse, verse 9, is the one that has been uh, churning away on the inside of me uh, for the last few weeks. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. The book of Haggai outlines the beginning of the building of the second temple, but just for a few minutes, let me give you this history lesson because this will be very helpful. Now, some of you love history like I do, so this is going to be fascinating. Others of you, not so keen on history, but this will still be helpful to you to put this whole thing in context and understand the truth that the Word of God is trying to teach us here. As I mentioned before, there was a first temple. This was built by Solomon around 1000 BC. If you want to have a read of 1 Kings uh, chapters 5, 6, 7, 8 and 9 sometime during the week, you'll see the detail there that it gives of the splendor of Solomon's temple. The finest of craftsmanship and resources went into this temple. They imported cedar wood from Lebanon, high-grade stone. It was overlaid with gold and stunning statues and ornaments and artifacts. The furnishings were made of burnished bronze, pure gold, silver, and cast metal. Much of it was engraved. This whole project of building Solomon's temple took seven years, and so we can only begin to wonder at the magnificence of this building. Now, this Temple of Solomon stood for just over 400 years in all of its splendor. And then in 586 BC, the temple and all of Jerusalem was destroyed when King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Babylonian Empire, led his armies and conquered Jerusalem. At that time, the population of Jerusalem was absolutely decimated by disease and deportation. The monarchy ended and to many, it would have looked like the end of the world. In fact, for many people, the world as they knew it ended at that time. And this is one of the reasons that I love history, because it helps us put the present in context. Because if you see everything purely through the eyes of the present, when disasters take place, it can devastate you and you feel like the world is ending, but when you look at it in a bigger spectrum, it doesn't minimize the disaster, but it helps you understand that this is not going to ultimately destroy humanity. Many times in history, people have thought it was the end of the world. In the First World War, people thought it was the end of the world. It was the war to end all wars, but it wasn't because we had a Second World War. And people thought that was the end of the world, but that wasn't the end of the world either. And as you look back through time and history, you see the disasters and cataclysm that has taken place. And we also realize that God has made us as human beings to be incredibly resilient. Even the devastation that has hit Christchurch, and I don't underestimate that by the, these statements in any shape or form, so please don't uh, take me wrongly here. But the people of Christchurch, when I heard about it on Friday, I thought, no, the people of Christchurch, again, 
I love that city. I spent a lot of time there in my uh, younger years as a, as a Christian. And on radio, I would give my annual leave for several years in a row. I'd fly from Western Australia over to Christchurch and work for free for Radio Rima for two or three weeks to relieve their staff uh, so that they could go and have a break. And so I love that city. I love Christchurch to see them rattled by earthquakes over the last few years and that city in parts completely destroyed. And now this. But one thing I know is that the people of Christchurch are also incredibly resilient people. They will never live as if this hasn't happened, but they will begin to live beyond it in future times. This is not the end of the world for them. We need to at this time remain strongly in prayer for them. Look at so-called Islamic State that was... uh, Uh, first came to being in 1999, although most of us didn't hear about it until around 2013. And I heard commentary around that time that it is going to take us decades to try and get the victory over Islamic State and destroy it. And here we are just six years later, and it's all as good as gone. And so we need to see things in the uh, framework and through the lens of history. For the people of Israel in 586 BC, when their temple and their city was destroyed, it looked like the end of the world. Many of them were taken into captivity in Babylon. But 47 years later, the Babylonian Empire was brought down by the Persian Empire. King Cyrus rose to power, and he was completely different to King Nebuchadnezzar. And everything started to change for the better just 47 years later. In 539 BC, the Babylonian Empire fell, and one year later, King Cyrus of Persia, a pagan king, made a royal decree that is recorded for us in Scripture. You'll find it in the book of Ezra, and you'll find it in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. Let me read this to you. The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. And here it is, two and a half thousand years later. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up, and may the Lord their God be with them. What an incredible proclamation from a pagan king that God had spoken to him to release the people of Israel who wanted to go home. The rest were welcome to stay. But if you want to go home, and he gave them the the funds to, to go home, to start to rebuild their homes, their city, and their temple. And so in 538 BC, Zerubbabel led the first group of Jews, numbering 42,360 people. He led them back to Jerusalem in order to rebuild the city and the temple. And so that brings us to the book of Haggai which was written 18 years later in 520 BC. During that 18 years, the returnees had started to build or rebuild their homes. Some of them had got married, had kids, settled down. Jerusalem was starting to be restored, but the temple was still not built 18 years later. I mean, this thing was taking longer than the Melbourne Airport rail link. And so that brings us back to Haggai chapter 2, verses 1 to 9. October the 17th, 520 BC. The temple's foundation was being laid, the plans were being discussed, but many people weren't happy about the new temple 
because it wasn't going to be a patch on the old one. As I said before, there were people in the crowd who knew what Solomon's temple was like. They watched it be destroyed. They were taken into captivity in Babylon. 47 years later, they make the trip back to Jerusalem. And then they hear about the temple. It's going to be, it's going to be built now. It's going to take four years. It's going to be dedicated in 516 BC. But it's not a patch on the old one, and they are not happy. In this new temple, there was going to be no Ark of the Covenant. It was still missing. Not even Harrison Ford could find it. No Ark of the Covenant meant that the Holy of Holies was empty. There were no tablets of stone. The Ten Commandments had disintegrated years before. The pot of manna and Aaron's rod were missing. The Urim and the Thummim, which were the divination objects of the old temple, they were gone. There were no holy oil or sacred fire in the second temple. And so it was easy for people to look at all of this and to long for the past, for the magnificence of Solomon's temple. The new one was just not as good. Do you ever find yourself longing for the past, looking back? Regret is wasted energy, is it not? I mean, it's nice to look back and, 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 and enjoy the memories of good things that have gone by. But if you're hankering after the past, you'll miss the present and the future. I mean, the past has been great for Bayside Church. 27 years. When I say it, it sounds so quick. 27 years, actually a very long time. But on this day in 1992, we opened up the doors of W.D. Rose and Sons Funeral Parlor in Cheltenham. It was a great place. God was undertaking for us back in those days. It doesn't get nearly as much laughter as it used to, that joke. <laughs> a friend of mine had pioneered a church in Burwood and he'd started it in a funeral parlor God had told me to start a church in the Bayside suburb of Cheltenham, and so I, I, I thought, okay, well, a funeral parlor sounds great. So I approached W.D. Rosenson, asked if we could use their chapel on a Sunday morning. They said, yes, we won't charge you, and we will provide a cleaner as well. They gave us a garage to store all of our stuff in, and so I thought, I was pretty naive. I think God uses our naivety, you know, start a church. Okay, and so I did. I had a small team of people that were sent out from another church. We were prayed over the Sunday before, just a small group of people. So I didn't know how many people were going to turn up on day one. Uh, a friend of mine, Jack, his parents that I, I knew pretty well, uh, they weren't Christians, but they felt sorry for me and they were concerned that no one might come. And so they came on day one. Uh, seven weeks later, they gave their lives to Jesus and stayed at Bayside for years. Uh, Val passed away a few years ago, but Brian is still at Bayside. He was in church this morning at Cheltenham, 27 years to the day, down the track. He's now 89 years of age. And so we started and opened the doors, and about 80 people turned up on the first day. Uh, I was amazed. Where have you all come from? Now, some of them I knew, some of them felt sorry for me, some of them, some of them uh, just came to support. There were people from other churches and so on and so forth. And so 80 people on day one, and then it gradually grew from there over the next few weeks down to about 25. <laughs> this was exciting. And then that was our core group. And uh, that was Easter 1992. And I remember getting up on Good Friday morning and Easter Sunday and just this small group of people thinking, Maybe God hasn't called me, but I knew He had, and I continued to pastor and to teach and to love and to pray, and over the process of time, we grew again. And uh, 
for a year and a half, we stayed in that school hall, uh, that, um, that funeral parlor, uh, until we were basically falling out of the windows. Uh, the children's ministry, by the way, was in the viewing room. So the children were incredibly well behaved. There was a coffin in there, which I am told is empty, but I never checked. And so we were there. The lady, by the way, who taught um, that first class, Kim Wynn, she and her husband, Jeff, are still part of our church as well, 27 years down the track. So in the middle of 1993, uh, we moved into Cheltenham Primary School Hall and then into Mentone Girls Secondary College, where we stayed for six years and the church grew uh, to around 300 people during that time. In 1997, once again, the Holy Spirit spoke to me very clearly and said, get the church into its own building. So for the next two years, we spent a lot of time driving around the area, looking at every for lease or for sale sign. And I had my little checklist that I was looking for uh, in a building. And then a, a Christian real estate agent uh, rang me one morning and he said, I think I found your building for you. And I walked around the block and I found the uh, Argus Street property that we're in now. And so 20 years ago this year, 1999, we put an offer in on that building. The offer was accepted. We bought the building, moved in, renovated the offices and moved in there. And then the middle of year 2000, we moved into a very small auditorium inside that building. And that building has served us very, very well uh, for almost the last two decades. And then, of course, over 10 years ago, we pioneered our Frankston campus. You beautiful people. And uh, then several years ago, um, we uh, signed a lease on this building and uh, spent quite a lot of money doing a beautiful fit-out so that Bayside Church in the city of Frankston has a great place to worship and to work from as well. And so that's the history, in brief, of Bayside Church. So many other things I could say uh, during that time. Some of it has been great. Some of it's been horrible. Some of it's been painful. Some of it's just been very bland and ordinary. Pretty well like life is for all of us. Is that not right? I had a guy several years ago say to me, oh, but I really miss the days in the funeral parlor. And I said to him, I said, look, they were great days, but like we could only just squeeze 80 people in there. And I think God wants us to reach more than 80 people. And so, yeah, they were great days. Now, he passed away a while ago, and I believe he went back to a funeral parlor for a short period of time. I know, that's a very edgy joke, right? So I did toy up whether to use it. Christy said, don't. So his dream came true. They were good days. But I'm grateful that there are, and, and I am grateful, I should say, that there are still people at Bayside Church who were with me on day one. Um, one of them sitting here right now, Carol Lutz, has been with us for 27 years at Bayside. Good on you. And we still love each other, which is really good, Carol, isn't it? <laughs> it's wonderful. I'm looking around. I don't see anybody else. Is Inez Tracy here today? No? Okay. So Inez and Terry joined us um, in the first year. Uh, of Bayside as well. And uh, many other people came in uh, in the first couple of years, including Stuart and Sonia Campbell. Uh, Stewie's in uh, India on the missions trip at the moment, so do pray for him. But I see Sonny over there today. Thank you for doing the journey with us, Campbell family. It's wonderful. Um, I'm looking down at my list here, and, and many of these folk are uh, part of our Cheltenham 
campus. But anyone else here from the first couple of years of Bayside? No, I think everybody else is, 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 is Cheltenham. But thank you for doing the journey with us. Um, and of course, many of the couples that joined us in the first couple of years then had children, including us and including the Campbells, who also are part of Bayside and loving Jesus and following him. So the funeral parlor days were good days, but they're over. Through God's grace, he's led us over the last 27 years. It's easy to look back and think of the past as better than today, and especially with people. I've had people say, oh, if only those people were still here, what a shame they left. And I agree with you. We see, just like any church sees, uh, people come and go. Uh, Sometimes they go for good reason. Uh, Sometimes people move to a different part of the city, sometimes people move to a different part of Australia or even uh, overseas and, and it's heartbreaking to see uh, wonderful people that you grow great friendship and, and relationship with move. Other people uh, get offended for all sorts of reasons and, and move to another church and, and, and that saddens me greatly. I've got to tell you that my heart has broken more times than I care to mention in the last 27 years of leading this church. But looking back, is wasted energy, and that's what Haggai's prophecy is teaching us. There was a thought in the ancient world that a temple had to be made splendid for the deity to want to come and dwell in it. So it had to be wealthy and and magnificent and full of gold and precious metals, and then the deity would look and go, yes, that's a suitable house for me, and he would um, stoop down to dwell in that house. And Haggai's prophecy comes along and just blows that myth away and removes the fear that that sort of thing causes. Haggai's prophecy teaches that God's house is made magnificent and marvelous by His presence and not by gold and silver and extravagance and wealth. And that's what the Holy Spirit is promising Bayside Church. And so, I want to read to you a prophetic declaration that I have written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I want to proclaim this over you and over Bayside Church today. And so I would like you to stand with me at this time, please. This is a holy moment, and I would ask you to prepare your mind and your heart and and even your posture so that you are uh, ready and open to receive this word that the Holy Spirit speaks through me over this church at this time. I prophesy that God is bringing us into a new time of His presence, that Bayside Church will be all the more magnificent and marvelous because of the presence of God filling and empowering all we do. People who have been rejected or exhausted by other churches will find a home here New people will come and join us, and some of those who have moved on for whatever reason will realize that this is the house God has planted them in, and they will return to continue the journey with us. I prophesy that we will see many people choose to become followers of Jesus, to have their sins forgiven and their lives transformed by the gospel that this transformation will inspire their family and friends who will also come to see what has caused such change. Some of them will also receive Jesus as their Savior. 
Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. I declare that God is raising up new leaders, new connect groups, fires around the bay where God's people can enjoy genuine community, pray and care for one another, and reach out to their neighbors. And I see an increase in the boldness for God's people, not that we become brash or bombastic, but rather out of humility and compassion towards the hurting, we would offer to pray and genuinely care for the poor, the sick, the lonely, the imprisoned, and the marginalized, that God will make your righteousness go forth as the light and your justice as the noonday sun, that the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, and in this place, God will grant peace. Amen. Let's give the Lord a standing ovation in this place, shall we?